2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. Time to go into the old vault. Robert, is this one where I did the Sean Connery voice? Now, I'm just remembering in this moment. Oh, I don't remember. Oh, no. Are we— re? -er Okay, well, we'll just have to deal with it. This originally published July 5th, 2018, and this is an episode we did about neuroplasticity. Now, we were just saying before we started recording this intro— uh that uh, after having done all the stuff on psychedelics we just went through mm-hmm. we, we we may we may approach this uh subject from a kind of different angle now i wonder if i don't know if you listen to this episode and you want to hear you want to hear us revisit the topic with with new wisdom uh let us know
3: yeah i feel like it would this would have been a different episode if if we had recorded it after the psychedelic episodes but uh i i still think it holds up as a a solid vault entry so Dr. Jessup, do you expect me to talk? Oh, this. this isn't a standard interrogation. Inject him. What's this now? Poison? truth serum? None of the above. No, this is something far more uh, experimental. But perhaps a notorious secret agent such as yourself has heard of induced neuroplasticity. What? You're talking of experimental neurotherapy drugs? You're mad. Oh, neuroplasticity is far more than that. Yes, yes. this this, uh, sort of uh, treatment will soon revolutionize the way we deal with addictions and brain disease. It will allow adults of any age to learn new languages with the aptitude of a young child, but that's not why I've injected you with it. <laughs> no, we've, we've romanticized neuroplasticity, you see. We forget the importance of neurostability. As children, we have an amazing ability to adapt to any environment, any language. We're open to the world. We're also open to trauma but then everything has to settle we put aside those childish things and we become firemen doctors secret agents what do you want from me why well, i want to change your life hans roll the film wait what well, what are you showing me jessup a youtube playlist oh Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Hours upon hours of, let's call it, informative content. Oh, no. From some of the platform's leading personalities. No, not this. Influencers. No, I'll I'll tell you anything. Comedians. No. Commentators. (laughs) Unboxers. No.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be talking about another topic that's sort of a follow-up from Robert's visit this year to the World Science Festival. We're going to be talking about neuroplasticity. That's right. This
3: uh, this particular panel that, that I attended, and this one is also available online. We'll make sure there's a link to the YouTube um uh, video on the landing page for this episode at Uh This particular panel was called Nuts and Bolts of Better Brains. It was hosted by uh, Guy McCann, a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist, Alvaro Pascal Leone, a neuroscientist, uh, Nim Tottenham, a developmental uh, psychologist, and Carlos Schatz, a neuroscientist. And they discussed neuroplasticity, which is something that we've, we've touched on on the show
0: before, and I think a lot of people have kind of a general concept of. Yeah, neuroplasticity is one of those words that I think has suffered a lot of abuse in Mm -hmm. the press um, because, I mean, there are words that have a good meaning in science, and there's nothing wrong with the concept itself, but in today's neuroscience, neuroplasticity does have a meaning, and it does have a useful meaning, but you see it in a lot of hype and BS on the internet. Does yeah, that, Like, I notice when, when you do a search for neuroplasticity, you want to read things about it, you get mostly content at one of two levels, either content for experts and neuroscientists, like mm-hmm. actual scientific literature that the average reader can't penetrate, and then y- – you get also a whole lot of hype and BS that is telling you about, I don't know, about how you're going to revolutionize your brain and you'll become like a child again and become a master of your own abilities. Yeah, I mean it's already become something of a
3: buzzword, for instance, with, with certain uh, uh, like supplement uh, manufacturers. and Yeah, way. take this neuroplasticity vitamin. Yeah. Oh, okay, thanks. Uh, but, but, it, but neuroplasticity is a real thing. It is, you can think of it simply as the brain's ability to adapt. And uh, humans boast incredible powers of neuroplasticity, especially during the so-called critical periods of early childhood.
0: Yeah, one of the things to think about this kind of weird is um, how well humans adapt to such different life conditions. Mm -hmm. Like if you take most animals— out of the environment and condi- conditions that they're best adapted to, they don't do very well. I mean, right. th- there are some exceptions, but most of the time an animal has evolved, to have certain instincts, it's got sort of like pretty hardwired behaviors, it can live, uh, you know, it can be born where it is supposed to be born and live encountering the kind of stimuli it would normally encounter and, you know, it, it can do its thing that nature has shaped it for. But humans can do All kinds of stuff. We can live in the snow. We can live in the desert. We can live in cities. We can live in... It planes, We can be farmers. We can be doctors. We can do so many different kinds of things with our brains. And there are no other animals like this, really.
3: Yeah. Uh, the, in the, the talk, they brought up the example of the loggerhead turtle as an mm. example of a, a creature that is not a paragon of, uh, of neuroplasticity but neurostability. Right. A creature that uh, upon birth is just ready to go
0: and do a very specific thing exceedingly well in a very specific environment. But if you put some major obstacles in that turtle, way, the turtle probably would not find a way to adapt to those obstacles and survive around them. It would probably just not survive to adulthood. Right. I mean, and the tur- yeah, the turtle is a good example of that because, I mean, with with,
3: with various sea turtles, we've seen examples of how just uh, artificial lighting can screw up a very particular approach uh, to going about its life cycle.
0: Yeah, but so your brain, one of the reasons your brain is so powerful compared to the brains of animals is that it can be adapted to so many different scenarios and so many different types of tasks depending on what sorts of environments you're exposed to when you're very young.
3: Yeah, uh, language is, of course, one of the great examples. Uh, I think everyone is has at least some awareness of this. Uh, certainly anybody out there who's a parent has has read about this or experienced this with their own uh, children is that, that during certain critical periods, they have an amazing ability to not only pick up language, but to just perfectly pick it up, to just breathe it in and and, and become fluent in it without uh, with, without any of the challenges that are generally uh, encountered by adults trying to learn a second language.
0: I mean, one of the ways that it's often put is that with great effort and adult can learn to speak a language they don't already speak, but they will pretty much always speak it with an accent. Right. Children can learn to speak all kinds of lang- can learn to speak multiple languages at the same time, and can generally learn to speak them without an accent. Right. But then, of course, it goes beyond this too. It gets there. There's so many other things that are being absorbed uh,
3: during childhood. You know, mm-hmm. the social norms, cultural norms, uh, just how one interacts with your environment, and that has enabled humans to thrive all over the world, obviously with technological uh, aids in many cases. But uh, still,
0: it it underlies the diversity and success of our species. Then again, there are some reasons to think that you don't want the brain to be sort of infinitely plastic, right? Because if we consider plasticity the ability of the brain to adapt to new scenarios and change itself to work better – you also need cases where the brain knows what to do and does it instead of keeps being influenced and changing, right? Right, and knows where to where to where to stop. You know yeah. what it, what avenues
3: to stop exploring. Because uh, basically, what happens is our neural circuitry branches out to master the skills necessary for survival, and then uh, and then after it does this, after you know some of the branches have been pruned back. Uh, you can think of it like, a you know, like a, one of those uh, shrub sculptures from The Shining, from, right. uh, you know, the, the original uh, novel, if you've read that. You know, you, you you prune everything down, cut it away until it's the, the appropriate shape.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing that the speakers in this event talk about is the, the idea of pruning in childhood, how mm-hmm. it starts off with way more connections than it needs, and then through this process, it sort of pairs back the stuff that says, okay, it looks like I'm not going to need that in life. We can just sever all those. Yeah,
3: I mean, it, it kind of matches up with the... The, the cliche of the, the child who can grow up to be anything, right? Uh-huh. Which you know, obviously, any given child can't grow up to be absolutely anything. But right. there is a there, there is a lot of room for specialization and and, uh, and and diverse growth there.
0: Yeah, we have natural tendencies and natural potentials, and some of that is genetic. But then also, we we're extremely adaptable as children, right? But then, of course,
3: neural stability has to kick in. That's important too. A a necessary balance in the human brain. Um, You're going to grow up and become this thing we call an
0: adult. But what if I am Peter Pan and I don't want to grow up and be an adult because growing up and being an adult and having neurostability limits my potential. What if I decide I don't want to be somebody who only speaks English. I want to be somebody who speaks Chinese and speaks French and speaks uh, the click languages. And, you know, what if I want to speak all those languages without an accent? Why can't I do that?
3: Yeah, I want to have infinite uh, potential again. Uh, I want to go back to... I want to be able to grow up to be anything, mm-hmm. you know? I, I think we've all had moments like that where we, we 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 look at where we are and we think, well, if I could go back and open myself up to this language or this ability or what have you, uh, then I would love to do that, you know? Or, or just the idea that nobody wants to—you don't want to feel stagnant. You want to feel like you're continuing to grow and, uh, and you know, keep up with the young ones. Uh, and so scientists have continually looked uh, to possible ways of essentially— rewidening the doorways of um, of neuroplasticity. Now, that's one of the metaphors that's often used, right, is that when you're a child, the, the, the door is open, the window is open uh, for you to grasp onto anything. But then, depending on who's throwing the metaphor around, you can say, well, it closes when you become an adult.
0: But it doesn't really close. It does It gets sort of like, it gets almost closed. Right, it narrows. And so...
3: We've looked to ways to to widen it in adulthood, and and it goes beyond
0: just mere, um, you know, uh, intellectual. Uh uh, vanity as well. Right, right. It's not just Peter Pan saying, I want this, I want that. There's also the idea of treating problems in the adult brain by reintroducing plasticity. Right. It would, it would give us a
3: way to uh, treat uh, various neurodegenerative disorders, anxiety, depression, even uh, pro- post-traumatic stress disorder. Like Anytime there's a, there's a potential for, for growth and change, positive growth and change in the brain to help with a given condition, neuroplasticity is often brought up as a, as a potential uh, cure. But it's a challenge to do this sort of thing. Uh, as uh, Columbia University developmental psychologist uh, Dr. Nim Tottenham, who we re- referenced already, uh, as she stated in the in that World Science Festival discussion, the brain actually extends a lot of energy to keep critical periods from reopening.
0: Yeah, we there there seems to be some logic underlying this this move that evolution took, right? Yeah, it says you know you don't stay a plastic child forever. At some point, the brain needs to figure out what to be and be that. Right. And, and that's one of the reasons we're uh,
3: we're calling this episode uh, the dark side of neuroplasticity," not that neuroplasticity necessarily has this deep, dark underbelly, but the the sort of public awareness tends to lean so heavily towards neuroplasticity is just an absolute good. I want as much of it as I can get
0: we uh, We want to counter the hype yeah. the, uh, neuroplasticity is a good thing, but it's also not an uh it's not a good thing in every possible case in every possible sense, right, and towards the end of the episode we'll we'll Speculate a little bit and look at
3: some uh, some speculation from experts about what some of the possible pitfalls could be. What are some and even what are some of the black mirror esque uh, uh, possibilities uh, in a world uh, full of neuroplasticity inducing drugs?
0: Yeah. Now the question about these drugs, though, is still wide open. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's sort of, uh, I hate to use the metaphor of the Wild West. What's a better metaphor for uh, an arena in which there is still much uh, much new ground being forged? Welcome to the jungle, baby? No. You know? uh, uh, how about some spelunking? We're, we're spelunking?
3: Yeah, those are close confines, though, I guess. Uh, okay. I, th- I think, I think well,
0: Wild West is still pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever it is, I mean, we're still trying to figure out what kinds of drugs might do this, what side effects they might have if they are effective at doing it. And we'll talk more later in the episode about what some of these specific drugs might be.
3: Yeah, because to to master neuroplasticity, we're going to have to establish the molecules that close the doors. I mean, the thing is, it is possible to extend critical periods and manipulate them. And experts do, in fact, think that we'll one day be able to do this with a pill, with some sort of medication. So it's not a question of of if, it's a question of, of when. The groundwork is already being laid for this. Uh, it's just how are, are we going to be ready for it when it happens?
0: Well, I think we should take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss a few things about the history of the idea of neuroplasticity.
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us
0: with free samples.
2: All right, we're back. So
0: Charles Darwin actually offered some thoughts about how the brain changes in response to the environment in his book, The Descent of Man, which published in 1874. And though we should note that he did not use the term plasticity, he did sort of write about the idea of of the brain adapting. He wrote, quote, I have shown that the brains of domestic rabbits are considerably reduced in bulk in comparison with those of the wild rabbit or hare, and this may be attributed to their having been closely confined during many generations so that they have exerted their intellect, instincts, senses, and voluntary movements but little. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, note that he's imagining this adaptation of the brain taking place over multiple generations through inheritance, which is very different from the kind of plasticity that we're talking about, which takes place within a single body within a single lifetime. But he is at least offering an image there of saying like, OK, maybe the brain can kind of be molded to what it best does given its environmental circumstances, right? If, you, if you're a wild hare and you need to be crafty and wily and use all your senses to survive out in the brush, uh, you you will grow these bulky brains. But if you're a domestic hare and all you do is sit around and get fed, then you don't need all that stuff and the brain will adapt. This uh,
3: touches on a fact that we've discussed before and that is that uh, that the, that the brain like evolution is a miser. Yeah. and uh, it's cheap. Yeah, it's, it's cheap. It wants the most economic model uh, for functionality.
0: It is. It is the Ebenezer Scrooge of the body. <laughs> no, the whole body's cheap, actually. You know, it, it makes sense. You don't want to be wasting energy yeah. uh, in an environment where energy is hard to come by. Living in a world of technology and abundance, uh, you know, we should stop to think how, you know, if if you have food to eat, if you're not wondering where your next meal comes from, you should think about how lucky you are. But you should also think about how in many ways your body and the bodies of every other creature in the world were sort of designed for scenarios where you would be constantly living on the edge of starvation. Yeah. But back to neuroplasticity. So. The term plasticity emerged from the work of American psychologist William James, who lived 1842 to 1910. And James defined it the following way. He said it's, quote, the possession of a structure weak enough to yield an influence, but strong enough not to yield all at once. Yeah, I mean, that
3: makes sense. It's ideal for a, a, a young child to be open to their environment, but
0: not so open that they're just completely overwhelmed. Right. So I want to read a quote from William James from his uh, from his seminal work on psychology, where he he started to posit that the brain might have some kind of uh, might have some kind of like changeable structure. So he says, quote, "If habits are due to the plasticity of materials to outward agents, we can immediately see to what outward influences, if to any, the brain matter is plastic." Not to mechanical pressures, not to thermal changes, not to any of the forces to which all the other organs of our body are exposed, for nature has so blanketed and wrapped the brain about that the only impressions that can be made upon it are through the blood on the one hand and the sensory nerve roots on the other and it is to the infinitely attenuated currents that pour in through these latter channels that the hemispherical cortex shows itself to be so peculiarly susceptible. The currents, once in, must find a way out. In getting out, they leave their traces in the paths which they take. The only thing they can do, in short— is to deepen old paths or to make new ones. And the whole plasticity of the brain sums itself up in two words when we call it an organ in which currents pouring in from the sense organs make with extreme facility paths which do not easily disappear. For, of course, a simple habit, like every other nervous event, the habit of snuffling, for example, or putting one's hands into one's pockets, or biting one's nails— is mechanically nothing but a reflex discharge, and its anatomical substratum must be a path in the system. The most complex habits, as we shall presently see more fully, are, from the same point of view, nothing but concatenated discharges of the nerve centers due to the presence there of systems of reflex paths, so organized as to wake each other up successively, the impression produced by one muscular contraction serving as a stimulus to provoke the next until a final impression inhibits the process and closes the chain. So that was very forward thinking on William James's part. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, so he's got a very rudimentary nineteenth century understanding of brain function here, but it does get some some interesting basic insights right. Uh, one of them is that habits or tendencies of the brain consist of a kind of reinforcing of pathways of activities. Another is that uh, complex brain functions are built out of many less complex brain functions happening together in sequence. Another is that the potential and predispositions of an individual brain, like your brain, can be changed based on repeated interaction with chemicals in the blood or with the data of the senses. And that last part is, just as a tangent, one of those utterly mundane facts that I often have to stop and force myself to be amazed by over mm-hmm. and over again. Like, think about this. It, it sounds kind of stupid to say, but by making acoustic vibrations in the air with my mouth that you can hear, or by, like, drawing a picture on a chalkboard and putting it in front of your eyes, I can literally change the physical configuration of your brain I make changes inside your skull by doing things you can see and hear. Isn't that bizarre?
3: Yeah, I mean if you and if you extend it to written language, you can think, "Oh, well somebody who wrote something, uh inscribed something down 1000, 2000, 3000 years ago, they can speak across all those uh those those, those dead millennia yeah. and they can speak right to our brain and make changes in it."
0: It's unbelievable. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier that the term plasticity in the context of neuroscience had been used to mean a lot of different things. There was one particular paper I looked at about this by Giovanni Berlucchi and Henry Buchtel from 2009 in experimental brain research. And they talk about how the term plasticity has been used over the past century – To refer to, quote, changes in neural organization which may account for various forms of behavioral modifiability, either short-lasting or enduring, including maturation, adaptation to a mutable environment, specific and unspecific kinds of learning, and compensatory adjustments in response to functional losses from aging or brain damage. So that's a lot of different meanings encompassed in the idea of plasticity, but it does sort of apply to all of those. So it's subject
3: to generalization but then also is sort of – is a term that sort of refers to general change in the brain.
0: Yeah, a kind of adaptation that has come to be associated with pressures put on the brain from the environment, right? So with modern techniques, we've discovered that the way these pathways are forged and reinforced in the brain depends largely on uh, the crucial element of the synapse or, you know, the bridge of space that connects two nerve cells and allows impulses to pass between the cells. And in 1893... The Italian neuropsychiatrist Eugenio Tonzi first proposed that the basis of practice based learning and associative memory was these connections between nerve cells in the brain because Tanzi knew that there are other scientists who had observed the slowing of the passage of nerve impulses through the gray matter in the brain and so he hypothesized that maybe what's going on in that slowdown is that there's difficulty uh, for the impulses to cross the gaps between neurons these gaps that we now call synapses or synaptic fissures and based on that assumption Tanzi argued that the way the brain adapts the way it learns through practice and creates associated associations between things, the way it sort of enacts its plastic potential, is by a kind of exercise. When you perform a repetitious activity in the brain, the same pathways of neurons repeatedly communicate with each other. And by doing this, you cause a kind of hypertrophy or strengthening of the connections between those specific neurons. The more you do a certain thing in the brain, the easier that thing becomes to do in the brain. And then uh, the next year in 1894, the Spanish neuroscientist, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who I've thought before we should do a whole episode on this guy perhaps. He also speculated that learning was based on the creation and strengthening of connections between neurons. I feel like this is something that has been – I think over the years it's just been
3: so well demonstrated uh, or not really demonstrated but illustrated with animations and and, – and and art that uh, I have it like well ingrained in my head. Like uh-huh. when when people talk start talking about uh, uh, synapses firing, uh, I I picture it. Yeah, and maybe I also kind of think of it in terms of of playing an instrument, like the physical act of playing an instrument of linking, um, you know, uh, finger movements on say a trumpet or a French horn uh, to the note that you're playing, and then linking those in order to create uh, uh, the notes in a particular tune, uh-huh. which of course is is both literally. A, a, a synaptic learning exercise, but also kind of a, an illustration of what's going on, like making this, connecting it to that, and then leading on to the next note.
0: Yeah, we, we've learned this in the modern age, and so it's easy for us to picture, but we should appreciate how how interesting of an insight this was oh, yes. for, for the people of the time, because there were also competing hypotheses in the late uh, 19th and early 20th century, like uh Berlucki and Buchchtel showed that in the first couple decades of the twentieth century that this idea of the sort of learning through quote, reduced resistance at exercise synapses. Uh, the, the that idea was pretty widely accepted in that first couple decades. And then for a while, it really went into decline, This uh, the synaptic model of plasticity, due to a rise in the popularity of competing ideas about all this weird stuff about the equipotential version of the brain. But hmm. anyway, in the late 1940s, it came back. It was sort of rehabilitated by scientists like the Polish neuroscientist Jerzy Konorski and the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb. And Hebb was particularly influential— and then experimental evidence accumulated during the 20th century,
3: especially during the mid and later 20th century from the likes of David Hubel and uh, Torsten Weisel, Michael Merzenek and uh, Eleanor McGuire. Now, the work of, of each of those individuals is, is fascinating, and I would love to come back and, and look at them in greater detail. There's some wonderful work there regarding uh, you know, how, how we see the world. I mean, some of the very basic questions about the human experience, uh, how, how do we perceive the world and how is it processed in the brain, mm-hmm. uh, are explored by, by, by their work.
0: But the interesting thing is there's still something of a controversy about exactly how plastic the adult human brain is, if much at all. Like for most of the history of neuroscience uh, uh, up until very recently, a lot of experts believed that the human adult brain had almost no plasticity, you know, that it was fixed and stable. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's obvious that adults can learn new things and adapt. Yeah,
3: we can change and then we don't have to undergo, um, you know, catastrophic brain injury for it to happen.
0: Right. So exactly how much potential for change in plasticity is there in the adult brain and in what areas? Like – it appears much easier for adults to learn and adapt in some ways than it does in others. Language acquisition, as we've talked about, is a classic example. Um, you know, children are just so so much better at learning mm-hmm. a language than adults are. Another one is certain aspects of music learning. Have you read about perfect pitch, Robert? Oh yes, yeah. You yeah. have to get it early, or you're not gonna you're not gonna get it later on. Yeah, this is a commonly cited example. Uh, Robert, sing a middle C. Oh, I, I don't, I don't do music like that, Joe. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> almost no adults do. Yeah, unless you've you've trained on it before. You were, I don't know, <laughs> roughly six years old, right? Yeah. So if you have this skill known as perfect pitch, you should be able to recognize or produce. Not just tones relative to other tones, but like you could call out a note and the person would know what that pitch actually was. They could sing it or they could recognize it in hearing it. Yeah,
3: I, I my, my reaction to that question is the same as the other day when my son asked me what Thursday plus Thursday equals. And <laughs> it was just like, I can't. That just broke my brain
0: a little bit to even try and answer that question. <laughs> That sounds like a three key Thursday, <laughs> probably, <laughs> but yeah, so th- supposedly the idea is if you teach children to recognize pitches in an absolute sense before they're roughly six years old or mm-hmm. so they they can potentially acquire this skill. It's just like you've got to you've got to get going within that window.
3: Yeah, I feel like I'm 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 wasting my time reading the the Hobbit to my, my son. We should be we should be working on this pitch thing.
0: Well, there are all kinds of things potentially like this that you don't even know about that yeah. maybe you should be teaching your son at this critical age. You know, before the window doesn't close but gets very narrow.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of discussion of this out there in in parenting forums and actual uh, uh, you know peer reviewed uh, uh, you know child rearing material just about yeah. These are the ages of childhood when you want to throw a bunch of different. Activities at them. You want them to have some sort of musical training, some sort of uh, 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 training in another language, etc. Like this, this is when the the, the this is when the, the the windows are open. So you want to just throw as much stuff through there as possible.
2: But
0: I mean, wouldn't it be great if you could be like that again as an adult? As we were talking about earlier, yeah. the the desire to be Peter Pan. Or, are there things that we could do to make the adult brain a learning and adaptation machine like the young child's brain? A lot of people have been asking that question, and so I guess that's what we should explore now, the idea of induced neuroplasticity in adults. That's right. And as as we said earlier, uh,
3: it's it's generally accepted that we can do this. It's it's the, the what we have to do is figure out exactly how to do it. Yeah. It's it's basically we want to be Neural Puppet Masters, (laughs) but we're only just beginning to really understand where all the strings are, and then what happens when you pull those strings, and then... How do you pull those strings? Do you just yank on them or is it more of a delicate thing? We we, we are trying to to, to master an, an art form of puppetry that is uh, currently
0: beyond us. Right, it's not can we do this at all. We're pretty sure we will be able to do this to some extent. It's how well can you do it? How well can you target it for the kinds of things you want to do with it? How well can you avoid negative side effects coming with it, all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and what are the best drugs to do it with? Right, uh, and there, there have been some uh,
3: experiments involving induced neuroplasticity in mice. Uh, a lot of those. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and those show a lot of promise, is my understanding. But then anytime we're looking at experiments with, with mice, yes, mice are, are are great stand-ins for human physiology, but they, are, of course, are not humans. Right. So—
0: And there are a lot of differences between rodents and humans, especially in the brain. Right, yes. So there are a lot of questions that are are not really going to be answered until we
3: we better understand what we're doing with the mice and also get more and more into actually
0: testing some of these uh, treatments on humans. Well, let's look at a couple of examples of research on uh, drug-induced neuroplasticity.
3: Yeah, and uh, you know we're certainly not going to be able to cover all of it. As you mentioned earlier, a lot of the the, the research out there is either uh, is either the deep end of the pool or the uh, obscenely shallow end of the the pool, and uh, it, and it's sometimes difficult to make sense, of, even for us, uh, of the the deeper end of the neuroscientific pool. Well, we'll try to walk you up just to your armpits or so. <laughs> yeah, this uh, first. Study actually emerged this year. So, psychedelic drugs have long been associated with an opening of the mind, right? Yeah. And a June 2018 study published in Cell Press points to evidence of psychedelic-induced neuroplasticity in rats and flies. And um, I have to say, I I found this very interesting, too, because there's actually a part in Alan Moore's V for Vendetta, the uh, the original graphic novel. Uh, I don't think this is represented in the film version, but uh, you see one of the main characters take LSD at the site of a government resettlement camp. Uh, kind of opening himself up to the full horror of the place and his connection to it. It's, uh, it's a very powerful scene, uh, but, uh, but it doesn't directly <laughs> relate to, to this study. Uh, so this uh, University of uh, California, Davis study examined the effects of several drugs in test tube and animal experience experiments, including MDMA, DMT, LSD, and the amphetamine DOI. And they found that DOI, DMT, and LSD in particular made neurons more likely to branch out into develop. Based on their findings, the UC Davis team thinks that uh, psychedelic compounds uh, such as DOI, DMT, and LSD may eventually pave the way for prescription neuroplasticity drugs. It's just all a matter of, of capitalizing on their ability to expand the very neural circuits observed to atrophy during depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So they observed functional and structural changes in uh, cortical neurons for both vertebrates and invertebrates exposed to psychedelic compounds and isolated activity to, the, to uh, the protein called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And when BDNF was blocked, the psychedelics lost their ability to promote neural growth. And the case proved to be the same with the mTOR signaling pathway, which plays a a role in creating proteins for new uh, synapse formation. If you think of the brain as a complex map, then this research places two key markers on what could one day prove the pathway to induce neuroplasticity.
0: Though judging from what I've read, it seems like there could be a lot of pathways.
3: Yeah. Oh, yes. And senior author and UC Davis assistant chemistry professor David E. Olson on this, he stresses that there's there's still a, a lot to learn here and that his team's experiments didn't entail human trials, of course. Uh, but it, but it is enough to ex- suggest that the mind-expanding aspects of psychedelics, as we understand them, may one day aid us in creating new treatments. So I want to underline that the, the researchers here are not saying go and take a bunch of LSD and then try and learn uh, Mandarin or develop perfect pitch, they are saying that there are potentially things in these substances that we could utilize to create far better, far more targeted substances in the future.
0: Now, though there are some results indicating the possibility of induced neuroplasticity in adults and in adult humans, these are preliminary and tentative, as we, we want to keep stressing. This is one of those areas where I would really expect to continue to see a lot of controversy about the validity mm-hmm. of results over the next decade or the next couple of decades or so. Um, I, I think – it's it's important to stress amidst all of the hype and the advertising and all that about neuroplasticity, become a master of your brain. That that we're not there yet. This stuff is not ready for prime time. Right. Uh, I I can't remember who made this uh, comparison, but uh, I believe it was
3: pointed out that when when we tinker with the with the way our brain and even the way our bodies work, especially with uh, with various. Um, uh, pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. it's kind of like trying to change the oil on a car by just dumping the motor oil directly, like opening the hood and dumping it into the engine.
0: <laughs> um, you know, things are not nearly as targeted as they as we want them to be. Yeah, that's great. That's a good metaphor. Uh, so I want to cite a few claims, a few other claims about induced neuroplasticity in adult humans that have appeared in the press. One is, uh, one, one I've seen referenced a lot is a 2014 article in New Scientist by Helen Thompson about neuro- neuroplasticity drugs. And one of the research teams that Thompson talks about is uh, led by the Harvard professor of neurology, Takeo Hench, uh, who's been doing one, one line of research. And the basic gist is that one of the physiological changes that appears to close the window of neuroplasticity in children and bring on this period of adult neurostability is the proliferation of a particular enzyme in the brain, the enzyme histone deacetylase, or HDAC. And according to Thompson, this enzyme primarily serves to inhibit the activation and deactivation of genes in our DNA. So we know that genes in the DNA, it's not like all the genes are all doing their thing all at the same time. Genes can be activated and deactivated, turned on and turned off. And apparently the the proliferation of the enzyme HDAC prevents this turning on and off. It's like, okay, settle down. (laughs) Stop flipping the switches. So if this enzyme is associated with the end of the neuroplasticity window, what if we could simply inhibit this enzyme, right? Would plasticity open back up? So in 2010, Hinch and colleagues found uh, found this to be the case in rodents at least. They used a drug called valproate, which is a drug that specifically restricts histone deacetylase or HDAC. And usually valproate is used to treat conditions like epilepsy and bipolar disorder. In this case, it appeared to cure amblyopia in adult rodents, which is often caused by reduced reduce sight in one eye during a period in childhood when the senses are developing. If you don't fix it during that neuroplastic window in childhood, you're usually stuck with it as an adult.
3: Yeah, and this is something that played into some of those 20th century... Uh Uh, discoveries related to uh, plasticity that I referenced earlier.
0: Yeah, Uh, but would this kind of thing actually work in humans? So, Hinch worked together with Alan Young at King's College London and some other colleagues to see if this drug could allow adults to acquire a skill that's usually only acquired during that highly plastic period of childhood, and they went with perfect pitch, again, uh, calling out that that note, knowing exactly what the note is, not relative to other notes, but just hearing it or, or being able to produce it. So they did a study with 24 men who had no perfect pitch, no musical training, And these men were treated with either valproate or placebo daily for about two weeks. And during the second half of the treatment period, they watched training videos on how to identify absolute musical tones by associating them with names like Sarah and Jimmy. The reason they did names was to rule out any potential pre-existing associations that the men might have with pitches and the note names. But I like the idea of it's like, you know, sing me a middle Jimmy. (laughs) On the last day of the trial, the group was given a test. They had to listen to 18 notes and see if they could correctly identify the absolute pitches by name. The control group who took the placebo got an average of about 3.5 notes, which was performance at chance. The test group who took the valproid got a little over five notes right on average, which was significantly better than chance. So this was a small study, uh, maybe kind of small effect. But it caught plenty of attention from from other researchers, and Thompson reports that that there are also neuroplasticity induction trials with drugs like Donepazil, which is used to treat alzheimers or uh, the common antidepressant Prozac so you know you of course you see a lot of hype in the headlines like you know learn like a child again rewire your brain to be a super learner mm-hmm. But e- despite these early kind of promising-seeming trials, we should remember to slow down. Even if we didn't know anything except the fact that our bodies were created by natural selection, we could conclude that the brain shuts down its hyperplastic period for a reason. Do we really want to go messing around with the stability of our brain without a good reason behind it?
3: Yeah, are we kind of just trying to solve the lament configuration here without any real understanding of, of what is going to happen?
0: So let's. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we will briefly discuss some of the potential downsides of neuroplasticity, the pros and cons. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. So we, we, we discussed the idea that neuroplasticity could have not just pros but also cons. If you extend neuroplasticity into adulthood, that's not necessarily a perfectly good thing.
3: Right. Now, now certainly the, the potential pros are really attractive yeah. because we could ev- invoke brief widenings of neuroplasticity to aid in uh, recovery from various uh, illnesses and, and injuries. Mm-hmm. We could treat neurological diseases and fight the effects of
0: Alzheimer's. We could also use it to treat trauma. One of the things- One of the things I think about is that uh, in his presentation at the World Science Festival at the beginning of this panel, McConn talks about how hard it is to retrain people uh, to walk after they've had some kind of like stroke or brain injury that damages their motor areas. They, They forget how to walk and they need to learn how to walk again. It's really hard for an adult to learn how to walk, even if your brain is, you know, you're in a healing phase because walking is difficult. Mm -hmm. It's like a super hard thing to learn how to do. You're doing all this intuitive math all the time to keep your balance, to do everything right. It's not easy, but we learn it during this period when our brains are in this super learning phase as children. So – if if you could, say, have somebody with a brain injury, they need to relearn how to walk, and you could reinduce that kind of childhood motor learning neuroplasticity, then they could potentially have a lot more success and have an easier time getting back on their feet and relearning these kinds of tasks that we take for granted. But, of course, the potential for misuse and even abuse
3: is is obviously high here. Neuroplasticity has already become, uh, as we've discussed something of a buzzword in the realm of supplements and, and self help uh, and we focus again on this narrow definition of neuroplasticity most of the time, the idea that neuroplasticity equals good and assume that any sort of boost here is a good thing. But indeed, what would the downsides to even therapeutic use be if someone were to take such a drug unregulated to aid in study perhaps or or to work on some purely for some purely recreational purpose right. uh, you know what would be the cost we again, we don't know for certain but uh, but there are some possibilities, and some of these were discussed in that world science uh, festival panel what well, what did they talk about well, they said uh, for one thing, there is this potential link between too much plasticity and, say, savant abilities. Uh, Savant syndrome is when individuals with mental disabilities exhibit advanced abilities in specific areas, such as recall, calculation, or musical skill.
0: So under under their characterization, savant syndrome could be sort of a byproduct of of unregulated plasticity in the brain.
3: Yeah, or it, at the very least, it's a situation where if, if you're saying, "Yeah, give me all the plasticity you got," what could go wrong? And they're saying, "Well, uh, here here is something. Uh, here's an, an example of a case where th- that may be linked to too much plasticity." Yeah. Uh, They also say that uh, too much plasticity may uh, yield too much to the environment.
0: Yeah. How about um, when children are young, they're emotionally vulnerable?
3: Yeah. Uh, Or it makes me, again, think of that V for Vendetta example of a character essentially, you know, tormenting himself by by. Taking a psychedelic at a, at a at a place of of intense uh, historic trauma.
0: Yeah. Now I, I can definitely see ways that if you were to say make my brain sort of a, a vessel, make it uh, make it Play-Doh, we can shape it however we want. The first really bad thing to happen to you while you're in that state could have really traumatic effects.
3: Yeah, indeed. I mean, ultimately, it could make for a more chaotic system of, of the mind uh, in a time uh, during a time in which you're not supposed to have that much chaos. Uh, Also, they point out that autism may uh, be a situation that entails too much neuroplasticity. It's been pointed out that transcranial magnetic stimulation works longer on uh, autistic individuals, so there's stronger uh, perturbation there.
0: And transcranial magnetic stimulation that'd just be where you put like a magnetic coil over the head to induce current in the brain mm-hmm. and that sort of stimulates certain brain areas or or actually i think often suppresses or sort of like shuts down certain brain areas, but they're saying that in certain uh in certain cases it appears that some individuals with some types of autism are more susceptible to the brain being manipulated by that kind of thing, yeah, exactly. And then on the other hand,
3: they say that uh, schizophrenia may, according to some recent studies, be tied to synaptic pruning, Uh, again, the process by which
0: the brain sheds weak connections between neurons. In other words, that it might be more associated with the brain sort of being the opposite of too neuroplastic, too neurostable?
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, just showing that there is a balance in the – there seems to be a balance in the brain, and we really need to know what we're doing before we disrupt it, uh, even for very noble purposes and very targeted purposes. for instance, during adolescence and even early adulthood, we see this in the prefrontal cortex, the center of uh, you know thinking and, and planning skills. People with genes that accelerate or intensify pruning are at higher risk uh, for schizophrenia, according to a, a 2016 Columbia University study published in Nature. Huh. And then it's worth driving home too that. This would in no way be a magic pill. This would not be like some some movie pill where you just take it and, oh, I'm suddenly uh, you know a complete genius. Suddenly I, I'm a master of every art I attempt to take up.
0: Well, yeah. I mean we should keep in mind we don't want to overstate the effects too much or overgeneralize too much. But with the caveat that this is just a metaphor – you should be careful about anything that makes your mind more like the mind of a child. Yeah, that makes your mind more. Li- I mean, there are great things about being a child, but there are also ways in which being a child is a position of, of vulnerability. There's a reason we protect children. Yes,
3: and who's going to protect you if you're, uh, you know, if you're taking a whole bunch of uh, illegally obtained uh, uh, neuroplasticity pills? Uh, like, there's, there's not a direct comparison to be made here between say, uh, potential neuroplasticity drug abuse and, say, steroid abuse. Right, But, but, but I think you can, you can draw some very rough comparisons. You know, an individual who, who takes too much of this substance in order to artificially bulk up muscles in, an, in, an, in what is ultimately a, 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 an unhelpful way, you know, like muscles that are too big to really function for what you, you need them for, and then that occurring uh, with, some, with various side effects as well both mental and physical so I feel like we 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 risk similar situations certainly if we're talking about any future abuse of these uh, or even just recreational use of neuroplasticity drugs
0: as is often the case with with great possibility for rewards comes great possibility for risks so this is this is something where uh, you should keep an eye on it this is a, a field that could have great promise for really helping people's lives but but you know be careful don't buy into the hype and definitely don't buy anything somebody's selling
3: yeah yeah be careful because there as was pointed out there, there are already products on the market that are Using the neuroplasticity buzzword uh, to 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 reach you, uh, and at the same time, if you're thinking, well, Robert, Joe, I'm, I'm getting a little older, and I, I want to, I want to stay sharp. I want to, I want to do what I can to to keep those uh, those doors a little bit wide. I, I want to, I don't want to go into neural stagnation. What can
0: I do? Well, there are safe things that we do know about. In fact, there is oh, one of them is sleep. Yeah getting plenty of sleep, Uh, exercise and nutrition, Mm -hmm. Uh, using your brain, like uh, stimulation of the brain. Yeah, both
3: intellectually and socially. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know you you might think well these don't sound very fun, uh,
0: <laughs> but <laughs> I hate stimulating. This my is like
3: brain. you're like it telling us to take our vitamins, but in a way it's like that. It's like we're not talking about magic fixes here, but we're talking about things that uh, that that have done regularly over the course of a lifetime have been shown to have positive effects. Why can't I just have a pill? <laughs> I know that's that's what we really want, uh, but but I I do think when you when you look at it like. More often than not, certainly with more complex things related to human physiology and and, and certainly the the mind, uh, the, the quick fix is is not necessarily what we think it is.
0: Yeah. Now I want to come back on what I just said there. I am certainly not somebody who wants to demonize uh, medication of any kind, demonize psychiatric medication or or uh, ne- you know neurological medication. Uh, I. Uh, that's a thing you sometimes hear people do, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, why don't you just, you know, you need a pill for that? Why don't you just whip your life into shape? That That is is a fatally reductionist attitude that does not properly understand the way that our bodies and behaviors are controlled by chemicals in the brain.
3: Yes, and certainly all the various differences ooh, from brain to brain. Yeah, uh, yeah so uh, so I'm very much in the same same boat. Uh, I think the, the future for neuroplasticity is bright. There, there is a lot of good that is going to come. Of uh, these future treatments and medications, but it does benefit us to, to understand uh, what we're actually talking about and the, the, the both uh, negative and positive potential of the
0: technology. Yeah, so hold hold the hype, listen to the researchers. All right, so
3: uh, there you have it. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes, plus links out to our various social media accounts. And if you want to support the show, rate and review. Wherever you got the podcast, uh, that's where you need to go and drop us some stars and a uh, few uh, kind words. Big thanks, as
0: always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us, directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to uh, suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from. You can always email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com.
1: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway.